0: I'm Christopher Roberts, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here
1: to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Continued. Yes, we are continuing this episode rather than make a four-hour-long episode about <clears throat> The Believer. We decided to cut it up, and we have an interview coming now with the producer Christopher Roberts. He also worked on Welcome to the Dollhouse. He has a very interesting career of his own. He's an old friend of mine from high school, and um, yeah, it's th- this episode. If you really enjoy, if you enjoyed the last one, it o- it's only getting better, right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a great interview. Like he has a lot of really good insight into just sort of like this world of making little movies. Uh, I actually learned a lot. Like he, he has a lot of good advice, a lot of good points. And it's fun. Yeah. You guys have a good, you can tell your old friends because you guys have a good back and forth here. And I'm, I need to pre-correct something. <clears throat> in uh, in the episode about Oksha, we talked about how Giancarlo Esposito had never starred in a movie. And then in this episode, I discussed the same thing with Chris Roberts as it comes up. Uh, but since then, I have found out that uh, Giancarlo Esposito is on the poster of a major release this season. Were you aware of this, Brian? No. What movie is it? Well, it's not actually a movie. It's a, v- a very popular video game called Far Cry 6. And nice. uh, yesterday I was going into the, the Best Buy and I saw this big movie poster what I thought was a movie poster for a movie called Far Cry. And then I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, geez, I'm so unhip. I don't know. Giancarlo <laughs> Esposito is, is so much hipper than me. He's like he's transcended movies. He's moved straight to video games. So, <laughs> so he's doing just great. Good for you, Giancarlo. <laughs> Uh, Okay, well, uh, let's just cut to this interview with Christopher Roberts. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back next week to talk about State of Grace with your buddy, Zach Carlson. Nice. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast dot com, or follow us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast. And now back to the show. Christopher Roberts, welcome to the world is wrong.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy the podcast. I enjoy you.
1: Thank you, thank you, Chris. Uh,
0: I, I don't agree with all of the things you think the world is wrong about, but oh, I, I love I love that you uh, think the world is wrong about those things, and you want to tell people why.
1: Oh, you oh, could you? Uh, well,
0: yeah. Well, as, as we're recording this, you're you're talking this week about wolf. Yes. And uh, of course, I, I should clarify my statement that I don't always agree with you that the world is wrong about something because I, I don't really know what the world should think about Wolf. I do remember seeing it when it came out. I do remember not liking it, as many other people didn't at the time. But of course, I think about most things that I saw when I first saw them when I was that age, that I was probably too immature to understand them fully, or maybe not immature, but in a place in my life that was different from the place in the life that the filmmakers were. And so maybe it just didn't speak to me for whatever
1: reason, I should see it again. So you do agree with us, that you should potentially see it again. That's right. I, I'm not yet convinced that
0: the world is wrong about it, but I'm open to suggestions.
1: Wow. I, that's, I, I, that's great. I, I thought, see, it, it, you, it started out as a compliment, turned into something confrontational, and then you resolved the confrontation entirely on your own without me having to do anything. That's great.
0: Without having to blow myself up at the end, yeah, <laughs> like some yeah. people we, we're uh, talk about today.
1: Yes. So, yes, we, we are here to talk about The Believer, but I should also say, so that listeners, uh, they may pick up on this, but you and I have known each other for a long, long time.
0: A very long time.
1: We are old friends. We are old. We are friends. Just, and just we've shy been, of 40 years. Yes. And, uh... And good, good, and, and old good friends. So, uh, so I, it's a it's a pleasure to be talking with you as always. But it's particularly exciting for me to be talking about the Believer because this is a film I've thought a lot about. And obviously, you heard my interview with Henry, or my conversation with Henry, mm-hmm.
0: and, and Henry and I had had lunch about a week before that and and uh, talked about you oh, and okay and everything. So
1: okay, well. I assume you said nice things because he can. He actually he showed up for the interview and didn't have a, a bad attitude, so that was nice. I did. I did. Uh, okay, so let's. And as
0: you referenced, and as you referenced in your conversation, you actually came and visited our production offices when we were shooting in the summer of two thousand. You got some nice shirts out of the deal.
1: Did you mind that I uh, mentioned the shirts?
0: Not at all. Um, I would only clarify for all those producers and line producers and post-production supervisors who are listening out there that uh, the shirts I gave you were not shirts that had ever been used on camera. They weren't needed for reshoots. They hadn't been worn. They, they were extra shirts that we had bought for uh, the character Danny's gaggle of Nazi friends. Uh, his posse and they were, we had bought a number of shirts sort of in bulk in different sizes, not necessarily knowing all the people we were going to cast. So we would have a ready supply to go to for extras and things like that. And this was from the supply that wasn't ever used and couldn't be sold, resold for, you know, to, 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 claw back the the precious pennies we needed to finish the film. So I was thrilled for you to have them.
1: And if I remember most of his gaggle were big boys <laughs>
0: that's right. I'm not saying they were large, Andres. I'm saying they were in charge.
1: You you must have bought some small or medium shirts, and at the time, yeah, that's what I was looking for. And you you had them to spare, so yeah. You know, on the off chance you got a, a runty Nazi show up at the at the compound yeah. or something, you, know, you need to.
0: I also it. remember, by the way, that you were one of the few people. And this gets into some of the elements of our interview or our conversation today you were one of the few people to whom i described the plot of the believer and you did not think geez that's weird why are you doing that <laughs> <laughs> i think you you heard the story and you understood intuitively uh that it was interesting and compelling and, and it resonated with you immediately and, and actually that is one thing i did want to talk about which is that um is all right if i just jump yeah, right in
1: yeah yeah
0: so one thing that I always thought was interesting about the movie, look when you, when you read a script as a producer as a, as a or as a prospective producer as you're imagining you might produce something, of course you're looking for things that resonate with you you're looking for things that are unusual things that have not been said before or have not been said in the way that they're being said in the script, um, and you know you're looking to be excited and surprised right like anyone so of course you you read a script about a young. Um, Jewish man who becomes a neo-Nazi skinhead. That's going to catch your attention as being original and unusual. Um, But what I loved about that script is something that I didn't even realize at first that I loved. And it was how organic and natural everything that unfolded in the script seemed to me. So once you've decided that you're producing a movie like that and you go around and you're you're shopping it to people, and I don't necessarily mean for financing because when Henry and I started working together, the financing was more or less secure. Um, you know, he was going to invest in it and a, a company here in Los Angeles was going to invest in it. And uh, we felt like we had enough to make the movie. But I did have to hire people to shoot the film, to production design the film, to cast the film, to act in the film. And, uh, you know, so as I began trying to assemble a creative team, I would definitely run into people, people who were friends of mine, people with whom I'd worked before, who I trusted very much, and I'd give them the script, and they would just not understand the movie. They would not understand why I was making the movie. They thought, like, did I owe somebody a favor? What was wrong with me that I wanted to make this movie? They just, There were a number of people who, I guess what you'd say colloquially is they didn't get it. And... I began to think, gee, am I weird that I think this is good? Um, but every time I read it, I didn't think the film was weird. I didn't think it was strange. I didn't think it was uncomfortable. I just thought everything flowed organically from the characters and from the ideas in the script, and it seemed like the most natural thing in the world to me. And, and that is something you're definitely prizing as a, as a producer, uh, when a world is different and unusual and catches people off guard and yet seems totally natural to you.
1: But this wasn't your first foray into Nazi themed film. I was I did not know this. See, this is the great thing about researching your friend. I, I went I went on IMDB and did a little bit more research than I have in the past. And I saw this film Anima that you produced the year before or a couple years a few years before. Yeah. Uh, just a
0: couple years before, yeah. Anima, yes. Craig Richardson, writer and director, wonderful fellow and artist based in Rhode Island. Uh, So Anima is a film about uh, a documentary filmmaker who imagines that he is going to uncover a secret Nazi uh, in in Rhode Island, although I'm not sure that's I can't remember if that's made explicit in the film, um, and and instead discovers something very different, really the opposite of what he thinks he's going to find and stumbles onto a very beautiful and strange love story and a story of estrangement between a father and a son. Um, and and Nazis are definitely uh in the background and lurking, uh, but they are not front and center um just despite the 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 protagonists um False belief that they will be, and actually, that's an interesting thing. As I describe it, uh, the character um, played by Bray Poor, who's a wonderful actor, who played the lead in that movie, one of the leads. Um, I don't know if he's the protagonist. He's the he's the person through whom we experience the movie, but in some ways, he's the antagonist because he's so full of himself and believes that something is going to turn out to be true that isn't true, and he has to have a bit of a comeuppance. Um, but anyhow, but yeah, you know, I mean, so I'm a Jew, and uh, even though my name is Chris Roberts. Um, I, I was, you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and um, a lot of their family members perished, And uh, but I was raised like, I, I don't know about you and, and our generation of young Jewish people, but um, I guess we're not young anymore, but when we were young, uh, I was raised in a virulently atheist household on both my mother's side and my father's side, and uh, we didn't really talk about being Jewish, although I knew we were Jewish, uh, so much so that, as I like to joke, although this is not this is true that when my wife and I told both of our families that we were having a Jewish wedding, they, they wondered where they had gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I suppose themes of Judaism, themes of Nazism, themes, of Holocaust themes, of persecution, um, they felt very familiar to me. They, they were, I don't want to say they were mother's milk exactly, but they, they didn't scare me or they neither scared me, nor did I find them excessively deep and, and dark you know, they were just sort of the wallpaper of my childhood in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. I, I, the the line that jumps out to me from the film over and over again, and it's said sarcastically, but I think Danny says, uh, so what? So Hitler's the chief rabbi now? Yeah. And I feel like, I, and I'm, my experience is different than yours, but similar in that I'm a Jew with a name that doesn't sound Jewish, who grew up in a situation that was really separate from what people would associate with the Jewish community. And so for me, a lot of my Judaism is wrapped up in learning about the Holocaust and sort of realizing at a young age, Oh, that, that could happen to me. Um, and so in a way, yeah, Hitler is the chief rabbi, uh, did, did that line have, and did that hit you in a particular way or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I
0: absolutely felt that I grew up in an environment in which to be Jewish was to think obsessively about Nazis and the Holocaust. And so uh, I, I, and by the way, I am not saying that all Jews grew up like that. I mean, mercifully, I think maybe 90% of Jews don't grow up like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's how I grew up. Yeah. And so because I, because I didn't grow up with a positive experience of the religion because we weren't religious Uh, I didn't grow up with, um, you know, affirming, life affirming values of Judaism. I just grew up with the sense of to be a Jew is to be hunted, um, by Hitler. And, um, yeah, so, so Hitler did feel like the chief rabbi in my life for a long time. I want to say that that's not true anymore. Um, I am a pretty observant Jew now and someone who finds a great deal of, of life affirming, uh, values from my Jewish experience and um, and the, and by the way I think the movie gave that gift to me um, while it is true that I had a Jewish wedding before the movie um, I was still involved in my I mean I, I I was moving towards my Jewish identity in a lot of ways and in, in affirmative ways uh, in which in, in ways in which Hitler would not be my chief rabbi but working on this movie really um, solidified for the, that for me and, and catalyzed my Development into a much more observant and thoughtful, and and giving Jew, and I even had a grown up an adult bar mitzvah
1: afterwards. I need one of those. <clears throat> That's go a, and get yourself one, Andras. It's yeah, awesome. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, yes. And uh... as my rabbi
0: explained to me, you know, in in Jewish law, and I and I might be butchering this, uh, you become bar bat mitzvah when you turn, you know, uh, thirteen or twelve. So the, the 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 bar bat mitzvah ritual is really just the ritual. You already are a bar mitzvah. You're a Jewish man, and you're part of the Jewish community if that's something that you want to be. Um, And some might say you have, you are that whether you want to be or not. Uh, But I'm not your rabbi, so that's not for me to say. But um, the ritual itself is just a public expression of that. It's not the thing that makes you bar mitzvah.
1: Hmm.
0: It's just an added um, public ceremony that that shares that with your larger community. So
1: I'm trying to. So come on
0: in. What I'm trying to say, Andres, is that come on in. The water's fine.
1: Oh well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we, we can we can. And when it's time for my interview, we can explore all of the reasons that I'm hemming and hawing about that. But we're here to talk about you and this film. And I do want to get into. Well, I'm t- I want to get into talking about the film, but I also want to highlight one other aspect of your career, because when I was talking with Brian about uh, Brian, my co-host, about uh, the other things you worked on, I mentioned Welcome to the Dollhouse and he's like, wow, this guy just likes these films that are funny, but not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what was your Now, what was your role on Welcome to the Dollhouse?
0: So Welcome to the Dollhouse, uh, my role was awesome. That was the first film I ever worked on, and I was the first hire uh, on the film outside of the producers themselves. Uh, my friend, Ted Skillman, who I'd gone to college with, uh, was producing that film with... Uh, uh, Jason Cleo and Jan- Joanna Vicente, and um, and um, I was hired to be the location manager. And uh, this was in New York City in the summer or the spring, really, of 1994. And I really uh, felt pleased that my friend Ted um, had faith in me to do that because it seemed like a very important job. I didn't know everything that it entailed. I did realize later that um, he only hired me because I had a car. <laughs> and a car was really necessary to getting to suburban New Jersey where the film was going to be shot. Um, and I say that with love because, uh, you know, Ted is one of my best friends to this day. In fact, I had dinner with him last night. And uh, But I, I do know now that he only hired me uh, for my Mazda 323. And uh, so I would drive around New Jersey with Todd Solons every day for, you know, it felt like weeks or months on end. I'm sure it wasn't that long. And we looked at high schools and schools and um, you know, elementary schools and people's houses and shopping malls, looking for all the places that were going to represent uh, the world of Don Wiener in his mind. And I, I just thought that was a um, a spectacular Sorry, did you get that? Because I, I had a call waiting there for a second. No, but, I got it. Yeah. Um, so I just thought it was a spectacular experience because unbeknownst to me, that's the best way to get involved in filmmaking, because to work in locations, first of all, you have to work closely with the director and the producers. You then come to understand, you know, the production mechanics of making a film and what locations mean. And then I'm talking about when you're making an indie film where you're shooting on location and not in the studio. Um And also you then when you're on set, you're responsible for helping every department do what they have to do well. So you learn what the sound department needs because you're the guy who goes to figure out how to shut off a refrigerator or ask a construction crew to stop backing up a truck, you know in the middle of their work day. You're the guy who has to find a space for the costume department to set up and for the makeup department to set up. You're the person who figures out where the food is going to be and how you're going to feed the crew. You're the person who figures out where the second meal is going to come from when you start running late. At least you were on, I was on Dollhouse. And so it was an incredible crash course in every aspect of film production and an incredible opportunity to learn from a great director and writer, Todd, because I just spent so much time learning from him what he was looking for and how to translate the words he had written um, into things in real life that would represent what he was looking for. And uh, that was a great experience. And I stayed on and I was a post-production supervisor and a kind of unit producer. And I was eventually was a kind of a producer on the film, not a not a named producer, uh, because it eventually became a Producers Guild film and I couldn't do that, but uh, I certainly was involved. And, and actually when The Believer won Sundance and I came home uh, afterwards, the first voicemail on my you know then answering machine was Dodd congratulating me so um, that was really great so but it was a good film and and again another script where i read it and other people thought this is creepy and weird and i thought this just seems like the most natural thing in the world to me
1: (laughs) that's why we're friends chris i that's another one of those films that when i watched it i'll tell you just quickly my reaction to that film was there was this anger i'd been feeling ever since the end of the breakfast club like, I, I liked The Breakfast Club, like everyone liked The Breakfast Club, but I, the, the, being in high school at the time, that ending mm-hmm. got me so angry when they're all friends. And I was like, that's never fucking going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I stuffed it down and I stuffed it down and whatever. I got over it, whatever. It's just a movie. But when I watched, the, when we got to the end of Welcome to the Dollhouse, like all of that came rushing out. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that's the truth. And, uh, Yeah, you know what's a, what's a, what's a,
0: another thing that's amazing about Welcome to the Dollhouse? Well, first of all, thank you, and I mean obviously all the credit for that goes to Todd, um, but um, I certainly feel honored to have worked on it. Um, uh, the um, the thing that's amazing about Welcome to the Dollhouse is when people learn that I've worked on that film and they want to talk to me about it. Everybody thinks that they were Wiener Dog. You know, like people the people who were cheerleaders in high school think they were Wiener Dog. People who were the quarterback think they were Wiener Dog. The people who were Wiener Dog think they were Wiener Dog. And so while it is true that there were sides in high school and and middle school and there was good and there was evil, uh, it is remarkable um, how many of the people that you and I might look back on, and think we're on the wrong side of history Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in those times, uh, still think that they were the aggrieved party. I mean, it just something about the 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 verbal and emotional violence of that time in my life and mm-hmm. perhaps in your life uh, it was so intense um, and and people really feel it, but it seems to have really affected everybody, even the people who were, in my view the perpetrators of it, um look back and think they were the victims of it, maybe they were. I don't know. I also think happily, you know my children who are all older now. Um, I don't think that was their experience. So maybe things have improved.
1: Well, that makes me both happy and jealous, (laughs) but, uh, uh, but that's no, it is a good thing. It is a very good thing. And I think I, I do feel like films like welcome to the dollhouse contributed to that because for exactly what you're talking about, I think that you don't bully if you haven't been bullied and, you know, and, I guess that means that those of us who have been bullied have to always be on the lookout for our own, for that, for repeating that pattern. But then yeah. something about I don't know that, that's what I'm saying that something about that film broke that John Hughesian lie that it's all going to work out, and I guess the fact you're saying that so many people have responded to it that way makes me think oh well those are the people who. Have grown up to uh, and be bullies against bullying on school boards. and maybe that's yeah. a good thing. I mean, it's a good place to put that energy if you're doing it and I mean it can be a good place to put that energy., uh, but you know, I'm looking at it from a world is wrong point of view. there's no you know there's no point at which this all is resolved and everything's cool. and that's why again, why I really Love the end of Welcome to the Dollhouse and why I love yeah. The Believer. So let's, let's get back So no oh, oh, there is one other point here. Was this around the time that you were working f- with David Mamet's theater company?
0: No, this is after I worked for the Atlantic theater company in 91 and 92. Um, maybe a little bit 93, I think just 91 and 92. Um, and, uh, that's a theater company in New York City that was founded by, really by by pupils of David Mamet. Um, although Mamet and, and Bill uh, William H Macy and Felicity Huffman were very involved at the beginning, and she was one of the students there. Um, but that came later. But but I will say it was David Mamet. I mentioned earlier that I was on my, my path to my own Judaism, that was based on reading the book Writing in Restaurants and some other things by Mamet when I was just graduating. You know, had left college and was driving around the country and figuring out who I was, so, thinking I knew who I was, but not realizing quite how, how little I actually knew. So.
1: so you so you read that, and then how did you end up with, with The Atlantic?
0: Uh, well, I was living and working in New York City, and they had a job opening for a general manager, and I had some experience that I thought would be relevant, and I applied, and uh, I got the job, and I did the job, and I, I must say I was very, very bad at it. <laughs> and after a year or year and a half, they they asked me to leave, uh, although we all stayed friends. Um yeah, I just wasn't cut out for that job. I, I did not I was too young and immature to know how much I didn't know. And um I was just not good at it. <laughs> but uh but um so be it. And then and then uh the person who replaced me was really awesome at the job. Um and
1: they went on to great things. Who who was that?
0: Uh, a guy named Jeff Solis, hmm. um who was much more experienced and and shrewder than I about all things running a theater company. and w- do you have any and, and 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 but I mean, I will say I learned a lot from Atlantic and I went and I started my own theater company uh, called the Adobe theater company, which which was very successful. Um, so I became good at those things, but i, I was I was not when I was at Oakland.
1: Is there any particular story from your time there, whether it's about something excellent that you saw or some uh, I don't know, egregiously um, uh, unprofessional thing you did?
0: At the Atlantic Theater Company? Yeah. Well, I did accidentally hit David Mamet in the head with a volleyball Mm -hmm. (laughs) during a a July 4th picnic at William H. Macy's house. So that was pretty awesome. That was the first time I'd met him in person. (laughs) Uh, uh, And then, you know, but I know, I mean, I I worked, I got to work there on a play called Distant Fires um, that starred, among others, uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who was a young actor at that time, and he was just fantastic and fantastic to work with, and just the nicest person in the world. Um, and that was a really great experience. I mean, I had other great experiences there. I, I don't. Know, that, that's just one that comes to mind.
1: No, go on, go on.
0: No, no, that's fine. That's
1: oh, just... well, I was just going to say we just... I, didn't, did... I just didn't
0: want to say, like, I had that great experience and nothing else. It's just, like, among other things, I got to see Giancarlo Esposito every night for a couple months, and that was pretty awesome.
1: Well, I love that you highlighted that. Oh, and, and, then, that. He, and oh. then
0: he had to leave, by the way, and was replaced by a young actor named Isaiah Washington, who was also fantastic, who also later went on to great success. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, I was... The thing I was thinking about was... You mentioned Giancarlo Esposito, and he just came up because we did an episode about Okja, the Bong Joon Ho. Yeah,
0: yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. I like that film. And weird film. Yeah, the world just might be wrong about that one. Yeah, us?
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it is. Uh, well, we'll see. We, you check out our podcast and you see if we, if, if we, if we get it right, how the world is wrong about it. But we, one of the things that we mentioned of how the world is wrong, one of the great tragic and horrifying things about watching this film was when I realized that I don't think Giancarlo Esposito has ever been the star of a movie has he ever like he's stolen he's been this kind of he's been a star in tv series and this is not like a like I think he's probably doing just fine but it is Mm -hmm. one of those odd things that at no point has a producer i'm not saying you but a producer like yourself a young at that time independent producer or someone along the way didn't say hey maybe we should make a you know a death of a salesman with this guy
0: yeah well first of all you'd have to i have to go on imdb or something and and convince myself that it's true that he's never been the lead in in something um he's been but the I'll take heavy your word for it. he's been yeah. like
1: i maybe i i went through and there was nothing that jumped out i mean he has a a massive cattle massive catalog but it uh or a massive resume but uh anyway i just thought that was an interesting synchronicity because of all the people for you to mention Mm -hmm. we were just we were just singing Mm -hmm. his praises so maybe it's coming maybe it's in the works i I, maybe well i
0: thought i thought then um and you know again this was 30 years ago um you know he was an uncommonly uh Zen personality, or so it seemed. Um, and, and maybe he had the good sense to realize that pursuing uh, being a quote unquote movie star was not where it was at for him. N- not in terms of not having the opportunities, just that there were more interesting things creatively and personally to do than that. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be, I mean, it, it, it's not, it might not just be that no casting director or producer had the nerve or the common sense to cast him, but that he sought out roles and opportunities that would. You know, keep him in, in character roles and meaningful uh, sort of scene stealing roles, but not always the lead. Because, of course, as you know, the lead is often and this is not true of The Believer, but the lead is often the least interesting person in a movie.
1: Yes. Yes. As you as I know very well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, OK, now we're let's get back to The Believer. So when did you come to the production?
0: Well, I came to the production pretty early. Uh, Henry had a script, and he knew he was going to shoot this thing, uh, and he knew we wanted to try to shoot it in the year 2000, if at all possible. There was going to be a break in his schedule. Um, he's a very busy, was then and still is a very busy writer. Um, and uh, Henry and I actually lived in the same apartment building. And, uh, you know, Dollhouse had been out and had done very well, and that had given me some professional opportunities that were really great. And we got to chatting, I don't know if it was in the elevator, but like on the street one day and he said, Oh, you produce? And I said, yeah, I, you know, he said, do you know these people? I said, Oh yeah, i work with these people. Do you know these people? And just turned out we sort of knew people in common. He said, well, I've got a script. And of course that is both a uh, catnip to any producer's ears and also a little bit of yeah. uh, dread when your neighbor tells you he's got a script. Right. Um, but I said, great. And he showed me the script and I was like, Oh shit, this is a good script. You know, didn't know. And I mean, when I, I will say that when I chatted with him, and he said he had a script. I'm not sure I knew how successful a writer he had been. He was just my upstairs neighbor, Henry. So um, I wasn't prepared for how good the script was going to be. And the script was really good. And uh, it seemed completely crazy to think about producing a movie with my upstairs neighbor. So many things can go wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Henry and I just seemed very simpatico in a lot of ways. Um, and I just thought this script is too good to, I mean, I'll move out of the building if I have to, but the script is too good to say <laughs> to say mm-hmm. no to. I I was willing to give up my neighborliness uh, it, to work on that film, and uh, so then, you know, I, persuade, I I told him all the reasons why I thought I would do a good job in producing the film, and why he he could trust me to uh, both um, have my own ideas that would benefit his, and to advocate for his vision and not get in his way. And I guess he was persuaded by that. And we went to California and we, we met uh, the people who were putting up some of the money as well. And they seemed persuaded um, by everything that we wanted to do. Um, and we got to the business then of sort of assembling a creative team. And we would talk about different uh, cinematographers. We would talk about uh, the kinds of people who, could, you know, locations and so on and so forth. And so uh, I brought to him um a woman named Susan Block to be the production designer who had been the production designer and Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, we had talked to a couple of cinematographers, but one person I knew through my friend Ted who had produced Welcome to the Dollhouse so brilliantly. Ted had produced an earlier film called River of Grass, which was Kelly Reichardt's first film, and the cinematographer behind that was Jim Deneau. And so through Ted, I got to know Jim Deneau, and uh, I introduced Jim and Henry, and they got on like a house on fire. And so when you had a great cinematographer and you had a great production designer, a great script, you're you're very well along the way. Um, Where I had a little more trouble finding someone was a a casting director. Um, I knew Adrienne Stern, but I knew her primarily through her work in New York theater. Um, I wasn't so sure that she wanted to do a film. And so I I went first to people who had worked on films, independent films and people I'd gone to college with and knew. And that is where I really found some friends who who are amazing people and I like them, but they did not get the script and didn't feel like they could recruit a great cast for the film and were really worried that I was never going to find a cast because I wasn't going to find people who wanted to say those words and do those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I was sort of talking about my problem with Adrian and she's like, well, I, I I can do a film. (laughs) It's like, great, you can do a film. And, um, and Adrian was a gateway to so many, um, you know talented people uh in New York and we also then came out to Los Angeles to do casting and that's where we met Ryan and I know you, Henry told you that story there is one other sort of amusing anecdote about the casting of Ryan which is that we were um we were in Los Angeles for about a, for at least a full week and we had seen as Henry said you know 100 people and Ryan was the 99th um, I would have said Ryan was the 100th but I think he's right he was the 99th and um On the day that Ryan came in, there were a couple of days towards the end of the casting process where Adrian had an unavoidable conflict and could not be at the casting sessions with us. I mean, she had arranged them and found the actors, but she couldn't actually be there. And so my wife, who was about five months pregnant at the time with our first child, uh, came and ran the camera. And I was reading lines and Henry was directing and uh, my wife was there. And so, you know, Ryan came in and, and he did those scenes and the scenes he did. Uh, the big one was the scene with Guy Daniels in the coffee shop where he talks about uh, Jewish women and oral sex and why the Jews are perverted and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And, you know, it's it's filled with, um, you know, vile, anti-Semitic and, you know, sexually vulgar language and all this. And he does the scene, and does it a couple of times and does some other scenes that are equally vile. And uh, at the end of it, um, he goes to my wife, not knowing that it's my wife, um, behind the camera and says, I'm so sorry you had to hear all that. And she says oh don't worry i've been hearing it all day and he looked at her very sincerely and said well you shouldn't have to <laughs> and uh and then he left and <laughs> and and then henry and i went and got a burrito and we we're like he was really good but he can't possibly be in our movie can he and he was like i don't know he's really good i was like but he's blonde he's blue-eyed he's mormon he's canadian he's you know a good eight years younger than what we're looking for and um, you know, we just sort of were stuck on the idea that he was completely wrong for the role in every way except for being far and away the best actor we had seen doing the role, and he was so interesting and so different. And, uh, and I, I mean, Henry, I think described to you how Ryan's audition stuck with him and stuck with him and stuck with me, too. Uh, I, I will admit, I t- took much more convincing than Henry that Ryan could do it. Um, not because he wasn't talented, but because I had the very cynical... I just was too naive. I, I just didn't, like... He didn't look enough like the part to me, and I wasn't trusting enough of hair and makeup and his own ability to... Sorry, could you say that again? My apologies. Sorry, my watch apparently thinks that we're...
1: that i that i summoned um
0: anyhow yeah i i was i was
1: uh (laughs) i think that was like that felt like like karma like every yeah like well to have a producer here admitting that they were wrong i think every director who's listening they're just like just say it again so i can cry a little more (laughs) no no i was wrong and you know i i
0: i i i said to henry you know something really moronic in the hallway of our apartment after we got our building after we got back to new york like Yes, he's the best actor. But do we need the best actor? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, Henry just looked at me like maybe not. I don't know, and I'm sure he was just thinking like, oh good lord, you know, my producer's a moron. But uh, I I um no. And then Ryan did a tape where he darkened his hair and did some other things. And and I uh, like Henry as I watched the audition tapes over and over again. I I was really. Mesmerized by Ryan, and I, I was. Persu- I mean, I was persuaded all along that he would be incredible. I, I just was worried about the believability of him in the role. Um, n- not were, about his talent. I,
1: I, this is. I mean, this is something I talked about a little bit with Henry. Since then, it's come out in the news even more. Uh, so we're definitely zeitgeisty in that way. Uh, this whole thing of this idea of Jew facing as being, you know, similar to. It's, I mean, I feel like it's it's a it raises a, a lot of interesting questions, and the fact that you had to deal with it in the casting of this, uh, I think mm-hmm. that I, I would have been the same. I think I am still the same way. There's still a part of me that feels like it sucks that the guy who's playing this character isn't Jewish. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you. But I'm with you when the, you made the right decision because it's fucking Ryan Gosling. I might you know we know we yeah. wouldn't be talking about it probably yeah. if it weren't for the fact that you know, if James Dean walks in, okay, I think James Dean can be Jewish, you know?
0: Yeah. The the other thing I'll say, you know, Ryan was also just for me personally, uh, though he was not a movie star when he worked on the film, uh, that was my first experience of somebody who had that kind of particular movie uh, star charisma. You know, when I was, again, when I made The Believer, I had been working in film for about, you know, six years. I had been producing theater in New York and off-Broadway for about, you know, eight years, nine years. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of actors and I loved actors. I mean, I, you know, I grew up wanting to be an actor and acting a lot in high school with you and doing other things. You were very good. Um, although, uh, thank you very much but that. was not a good career choice for me. And I was not as talented as a lot of people like you and those people. And, um, but I, I did think I had the view, the very stubborn New Yorker view, that um, acting is craft, that, that uh, people have to learn that craft, that you're born with a greater or lesser talent for it, but that all actors are good and are capable with the right direction and the right writing and the right you know, lighting and so on and so forth of giving a great performance um, and that you can coax that out of them. And I, and I will say, uh, Ryan was my first experience of like, oh no, no, he, he's got something that, that you're just born with uh, and it's nothing to do with Henry's writing and directing, although Henry's writing and directing brought out the best in him. Uh, but he brought with him so much talent, but also so much personality and charisma. Uh, nobody who worked on that movie did not think that Ryan was going to be a big star. And I mean, and I'm not. And by the way, that sounds like a cliched and silly thing to say. No. Um, and he was also a lovely and wonderful human being, uh, and I and I trust that he still is today. Um, but. Nobody, nobody. I guess what I should say is, nobody thought if he wants this, it is it is his for the taking. Um, if if he wants to do great things in film, it seemed very clear that that was going to be available to him, um, and he did want that, and he 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 wanted to do a lot of things that are dark and difficult and challenging, like uh, you know Blue Valentine and and um, t- titles that are just escaping me because I'm having senior moment, but all the all the amazing stuff he's done. Um. Anyhow, it was just, it was just uh, that was fun. Just being around somebody who was so young. He was 19. He had his 20th birthday on set. You know, we all got him, you know, a cake and a gift. And uh, just thinking like, geez, this kid really, he's he's the world. You know, he can do whatever he wants um, if he wants it. So that was fun. I'm um, very, and I'm very happy for
1: him. Do you remember that at the time I was traveling through New York with my band, and you said, yeah. oh, there's, the, I know this young guy. He's thinking he wants to talk. He wants to do something with music. He's a, the actor in this yeah. film. He was in the the oh, Mickey Mouse Club." You told me, and he's yeah. he's trying to figure out what he wants to do as a musician. And yes. I don't like in my mind. I've decided not to remember if you said, "I want to connect you guys to talk." I feel like you, I in my mind, you just said. Would you have any advice for him? And I gave you some advice, but.
0: Which did, I passed on. Yes, no, I do remember. And, and um, uh, you didn't
1: just, I, but I'm, to be clear, I didn't turn down a chance to get together and talk songwriting with Ryan Gosling in 2001, <laughs> you, you, did I? You, 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 you did not. Your oh.
0: schedules were not compatible. He was shooting every day and thank you were playing yes. every night. Yes, yeah. thank,
1: thank God. Okay. Um, I mean, it would have been but, nice. But, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. That's one less thing. I and you, you, you and I—I I
0: don't know if you remember this. You and I even conceived of a, of a story idea, which was of a, uh, of a pop idol, um, you know, in a teen band who wants to become an indie, singer songwriter uh, and go out on the road. You know, basically somebody who was like Justin Timberlake who wanted to become somebody like Andres Jones.
1: So basically, the Pete Yorn story. Just so. Yeah, so. okay sorry moving uh, right along moving right along uh
0: so but, but I think your original question was how i got involved so you know that so we got involved you know we, we founded a great creative team uh we had remarkable people working with us uh you know on the set i mean again when you make a movie uh so many everything has to go right and and uh or enough things have to go right that they overcome the things go wrong so we had you know, Jim Deneau, um, incredible shooter, who, who gave the, the film an incredible look. Um, Susan Block, who did a great job um, uh, designing it. Um, Andrew Yo who found great locations uh, all around the five boroughs. Um, Susan Hoffman, who was also a producer, who Henry described in his interview with you. Who I think Susan, um, Susan really made sure that our film was a movie. Uh, If you know what I mean, I think Henry and I had the New York gritty street cred Mm -hmm. that we brought to the movie and sort of the verisimilitude of the thing. Um, And Susan was the one who really brilliantly kept an eye on the character arc and the other important things. I mean, she was the one who really reminded us, you know, we're making a movie. You know, Mm -hmm. there's got to be a first act and and a second act and a third act. There's got to be a protagonist with some stated goals that get thwarted. And, and like Henry described, you know, it's got to lose sometimes. It's got to transform. And I and I think, uh, you know, among her many gifts, you know, Susan made sure that uh, Henry really kept his eye on some of the big story arc where I think I was much more focused on a lot of the day to day. This scene, that scene, you know, great performances, making sure the cameras got the right well, I didn't have to make sure the camera had the right lenses. Jim did that. But, you know, making sure that those the crew had what they needed to tell the story that they wanted to tell. Um, but that ended up, I think, being a good combination. I learned a lot from her, and and that was great. Uh, and then I also want to credit, because I never get enough credit, the editors, Mayan Lowe, and Lee Percy. Uh, and it was Susan who brought in Lee Percy um, when we were a little bit lost in the editing room. And Lee, in, in many ways, uh, is the difference between the film being good and being great. He... He he found um, all of the greatness within it that we were putting out there. But, you know, the souffle wasn't rising until we got in there with Henry and they really found it. And then Joel Diamond. Oh, my God. You know, Joel's music is so great. Um, I work with Joel on Welcome to the Dollhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, And um, and then I want to give a big shout out to Susanna Parrott. She was the music supervisor who worked with Joel um on his uh compositions and found the right way to slot them in. And, you know, it's not enough to score a movie brilliantly. It's when to use the score, um, at what volume, uh, and how to use instrumentation and the percussive nature of instrumentation to augment, you know, it, it so in in many movies you're using it to augment the mood, the atmosphere, to sort of clue in the audience what to feel. Mm-hmm. In so many ways, Susanna's genius and Joel's genius was finding ways to use the music to punctuate the words. And to let you know, um, the internal thought process of Danny come out in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The yeah. music, you know, what Joel wrote was very staccato, was very percussive in a lot of places, it was very moody, but was really giving color and texture to a lot of the talking in the movie, not just the thinking. I don't know; it's hard to explain, but um, I, I thought the use of movie of, of music in the movie was one of the things I'm most proud of, and. Um, one of the most unusual elements of the movie I think and all by the way recorded by Joel alone in a room at the Chelsea hotel which I'm also very proud of
1: that's pretty great that's pretty great now was was Ryan Gosling the first actor hired or was who was there did you need to get a name in there were Billy Zane and Teresa Russell the reason you got money
0: yeah Billy Zane and Teresa uh, well They aren't the reason we got money, but they're the reason we, I think they're part of the reasons we could keep the money. (laughs) Um, I mean, we were going to get the money, but we had to agree to to find some names that would be helpful to selling the film in international territories. Of course, the the, the business of selling movies then was very different from what it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Ryan, in my memory, was the first actor cast, um, although that's going back 20 years. And then, um, you know, and then Teresa and Billy. Um, and, and, and Summer, of course, I think Henry already wrote the part for Summer. Mm -hmm. Um, and so while she hadn't, I don't think technically been cast ahead of Ryan, there was no doubt that that's who we wanted. Um, and we were very fortunate that she could do it then.
1: Now I have another casting question. Uh, I have two sort of random, just personal, uh, casting questions. First is... Now we, we there was some confusion on the in my discussion with Henry about Natasha Leggero showing mm-hmm. up in the film, yeah. uh, but you you can clear that up for us.
0: Well, yeah. So you see, so she's the waitress in the scene between Danny Balan and Guy Daniels in the coffee shop where um, Guy confronts Danny about the fact that he's a bar mitzvah Jew from you know Brooklyn. Um, And she is the one serving the coffee and she has a few great like cutaway expressions when she's like (laughs) pouring coffee for them. And uh, and and, uh, you know, Ryan is saying something suitably outrageous about, you know, Jewish women or about Jews.
1: Um, And my Jews and that in that one, he's he goes for everyone. Really, he goes
0: for everyone, yeah. yeah. So, so, so she had to play, you know, the the shocked waitress, and I think there are a few great cutaways of her like shocked expressions. Um, in my memory, and I could be wrong about this, uh, Natasha either came to us because she was friends with the actor Dean Strober, who was playing um, the part of Ryan's former childhood friend, the the, the the friend who's going to JTS, where they have the, mm-hmm. the, the you know, and 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 Danny sneers uh, mm-hmm. in the bookstore, you know, when he hears about this. Um, And uh, I believe that Dean is the one who had Natasha come and like play, like they were friends or something. Or she was on set and it came out through conversation with her that she was friends with Dean. So I I might not remember. She may have just been friends with Adrian, but um, yeah, she was awesome. I mean, I I remember her really vividly. And in fact, when she later became a famous comedian, I'm like, huh, that's so weird. I did not, I mean, you know, you don't, you spend a day on set with somebody you don't learn that their their great wish in life is to become a comedian. Um, So I did not know that that was her. Thing And maybe at that time she didn't know that was her thing either, but um, I certainly remember her being a, a, a wonderful presence on set. You know, I want to say also this set, just almost every day, had a really warm and convivial atmosphere, despite the fact that the material, maybe because of the fact that the material was so dark and difficult. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about how people were weirded out by the script, but everybody who worked on it thought they were doing something really interesting and special. At least, I hope that's how they felt.
1: And so the mood on set
0: every day, the mood on set every day was pretty, pretty good. Um, I mean, there were days that were hellish because always on movie sets, there are days that are hellish, days where you're not getting the scene, or not getting the shot, or some production element is not cooperating, um, or someone's late or something. But, uh, so I don't want to say that every day was bliss, um, but uh, for the most part, um, you know.
1: Natasha's day was bliss.
0: Well, that was a good day. I mean, Henry was, I mean, um, Henry was great on that day. I mean, you know, Ryan was so good and AD was so good. Um, And yeah, that was a scene that could have gone less well than it did, but they were just both fantastic. And a lot of that, I mean, the lion's share that is for them, but also, I mean, Henry and and Jim really got great performance out of them. So.
1: I got to say the, my favorite part of, I've watched that scene over and over now because I had to clip it for what we post on Instagram. Uh, my favorite part of that scene is art is the reaction shots just the people in the in the table behind yeah trying not to listen and and being sort of like looking at each other. like it's it's very your background actors are doing some some very subtle work there that is not yeah that, that completely sells the whole feeling it's really yeah pretty pretty great oh, yeah that's
0: good yeah you know a lot of that also by the way you know comes from the fact that um you know, I think Henry did a great job always in reminding us that the movie was funny. And I know that's something that you all talked about, you know, the ways in which the movie is blackly comic or just comic. Um, and, and I think that Henry really, uh, you know, in the pre-production process, when we do very long, you know, table reads and pre-production reads, I think, you know, everybody got it that that the movie had very serious you know needless to say extremely serious themes it ends tragically it's a very you know it's got a lot of dark elements but that we weren't there to play the darkness the darkness was something that emerged sort of organically out of the circumstances of the characters and the actions that they undertake um but that at the same time there was also wit and um you know the the comedy of 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 life of human existence was present in a lot of the stuff as well um in the in the the paradoxes of the character and, and the ironies of the things he pursued and the way we approached it. We we tried not to be self-serious about any of it. We tried to keep a very light touch and let the the drama of the action speak for itself. And I think that kept a good mood on set, but it also meant that the parts of the movie that are deeply, deeply funny, um, it, it let them have the oxygen they needed to be funny. Although, um, you know, I know not everybody sees the movie and sees the humor in it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think the posters really help with that.
0: Well, Henry and I did not design the posters, needless to say. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. The posters yeah, were we really idea. I think I told scary. You. They make it look yeah. like this is a Nazi movie instead of this is a Jewish movie.
0: Yeah, well, you know, American History X had come out, and yeah. uh, I think there was a thought that um, we wanted to position ourselves maybe as uh an even better American history X with another you know riveting lead performance mm. of a of a of a scary skinhead who nonetheless you can't take your eyes off of.
1: I wish um, I could have been in that meeting to argue the, yeah. the alternate on that, which is you want yeah yeah you want to be the for everyone who just didn't like who want who heard that they should see American History X but they heard about scenes in it that they were like, I can never watch that movie. This is for you. This is the nice American history X, the funny America. Anyway, sorry, they didn't do that. Uh, did you have Did you have an idea of like, I did, I, I, did I dream this or did you tell me that there was an alternate idea for the poster?
0: Well, Henry and I did have, we, Henry and I were trying to come up with a tagline for the movie that would subtly perhaps communicate some of our thoughts about the film. And, and the one idea we had is that the tagline should be something like knock, knock, who's there. <laughs> And just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, the believer. <laughs> um, you know, and and uh because, you know, like Henry said to you, I mean, you tell people you're making a movie about a Jewish Nazi, people laugh. It's funny. Yeah. Um and uh and they don't yet know whether you're making a Mel Brooks movie or, you know, American History X, but uh you you know, you try to leave some ambiguity about that and let them figure it out for themselves. And when the film premiered at Sundance, uh, you know, we did say, I mean, Henry did some of the intros, I did some of the intros, and we'd say, if you feel like laughing laugh it's okay hmm. we won't be offended um you get I'm like extra that...
1: jewish when you're like when you're telling uh people in utah that it's okay to laugh <laughs> at a movie about nazis you really get a you bring it in yeah like you know well I, I'm,
0: I'm sorry to say that when you're at sundance you're barely talking to people in utah because That's everybody who comes um you know talk talk about replacement theory yes uh, <laughs> <Jeez>. uh <laughs> Park Park City becomes uh very different uh in its in its uh organization. I mean, there are a lot of people who do come from the local community, um, and they're they're awesome and really supportive. Um I, I would think it would be very unpleasant to be a native of Park City and to have lived through the entire Sundance experience, but
1: yeah.
0: that's that's for other people to worry about. So
1: yeah, so there there is another question I have about the casting, which is just knowing you and watching it. A lot of the men in the film in, in this film that aren't uh, Ryan Gosling look like you.
0: Like, Sig Libowitz.
1: Well, the the, 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 the yeah. teacher, the the Yes, the, many many people many
0: people mistakenly think that I am playing the teacher. Uh, but yeah. that's actually a wonderful actor named Sig Libowitz, who then was a uh, a production executive um for Oh, My gosh, I can't remember. Um, but he 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 worked in New York and then he was in LA, anyhow, a wonderful guy. Um, and and so that Sig Leibovitz and uh, Dean Strober, who plays the, the friend who's going yes. to JTS, yes. Um, and, and, the, then and Ju- a little Judah. bit
1: Judah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and then Judah, who, yeah, is that um, the casting
1: director sort of like sucking up to you and being like, okay, well, we can we're gonna. <laughs> If we give I the think, I think the I think you're backing key.
0: into a different trope is, is that we all look alike. In no, no, no. Um no, you know these young, these young Jewish guys they all look alike.
1: No. Um No, no, they don't. We don't. They don't.
0: Yeah, we're a broad range of uh, people. Uh,
1: but not in your movie. In your movie the ideal Jewish man <laughs> looks like Chris yes. Roberts. My my
0: only role in the movie is that of the alarmed uh uh temple goer. Um, in, the, in the scene where um, uh, Danny is ordering everybody to get out and, and um, Elizabeth Reeser's character and Dean's character and I are all looking confused about what to do. And I'm, I'm standing with them, uh, you know, looking shocked and, and in my full Hebraic, you know, uh, stubble and all
1: that. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, I got to look yeah. for that. I know, I, I'm sorry I didn't see that. Yes. No, it's wonderful
0: to be able to go to cocktail parties and say, well, I did act with Ryan Gossing in the film
1: that's pretty cool and then you tell them what the film is and they're like oh that one what Mm. else have you worked on welcome to the dollhouse oh yeah yeah. what is what's with this dark and strange uh uh, robert i think the believer
0: by the way is a movie um uh many many people tell me they've seen it and i don't believe them <laughs> uh it's just not that many people saw it i mean that's what the world is wrong about it's not that they didn't it's, it's not that the world didn't appreciate the movie the movie received great critical acclaim won a lot of awards um was well reviewed uh and um you know has made a made a huge impression for ryan professionally um but uh i don't actually think a lot of people saw it unfortunately and that that is of course a regret of mine although it is also 20 years later we're still talking about the movie uh, you're talking about it, but not you. only you. A lot of people talk about it, and
1: that's a, that's a nice thing. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you a question, because I saw Noise mm-hmm. since talking with Henry. You didn't work on Noise. I did not. Uh, but have you seen it? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, w- reading up on it, I, I I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, it's yeah, it, yeah. it has the same kind of sense of humor. I think I like The Believer. If I had to Pick One, I like The Believer more. The Believer more, The Believer just has a mm-hmm. cohesive something, but I really, really did like Noise. It's a a, yeah. a really weird film in all the ways that I love. And yes, and, and,
0: and, Su- and Susan Hoffman produced that. And, and everybody who's listening to this podcast should go see Noise.
1: Yes, it's, it's really it's, good movie and support Henry. I'm glad I sought it out. But when I was re- researching it, I saw that it was supposed to be part of a fanatics trilogy the believer oh, yes. noise yeah. and then something else and then when i was talking with henry he made it pretty clear that he's not directing any more movies and mm-hmm. he said something that when he said it i didn't push back but then afterwards i felt like maybe i should have because he's like well i just don't think i'm a good you know i'm a i know what i'm good at i'm a good writer i'm not a good director
0: and well, I think what he said was, I'm a better writer than I'm a director. And I don't think he said he's not a good director. but
1: I think that's I mean, the impression I had was not like, yeah, Woody Allen's maybe a better writer than he is a director, too, but he still does it. Uh, but I felt like he was saying this is something I'm not doing anymore because I just don't think I'm good at it. And. When someone says that, like I've said that to people, and I don't want them to then start being my coach or something, I'm like, okay, yep. yeah, you don't want to dance, don't dance, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but I was curious, and maybe you've already answered it in the way you you said that. Do you can you give shed some light on where that comes from? Because when I read that there was a trilogy, I was like, well, I want to see the third film in this fanatic trilogy. The first mm-hmm. two really set up that the third one could be really great uh, but also you've also said similar things to me about how you're not producing anymore and wh- <laughs> and so what is it with all the people who made all these films that I loved in in the, in uh, my generation who are telling me that they don't that they can't or don't want to do this thing that they're obviously good at And maybe talking about Henry or talking about you or just talking about the state of film, there's something there that I want to dig into.
0: Well, let's see. Well, first, of course, I I can't um, analyze Henry. uh, And and even if I could, I wouldn't, um, except to say that I think that directing movies is not... Without knowing exactly what Henry meant by what he said, um, and and again not yeah. wanting to analyze him, I, yeah. my perception is is that Henry did not find the directing part, and I'm talking about the daily grind of being on set and having to, you know, deal with all the pressures of the day. I, I'm not sure that he found that um, as enjoyable as as writing, and you know, not not that life has to be about everything you enjoy. But I I think, um, you know, there's a lot of control when you're writing and there's a lot less control when you're directing. Um, And uh, so I can certainly while I don't know what Henry is thinking, I can certainly relate to what he might be thinking, which is that uh, films are fun to work on. But the actual day to day process of making them is very often very unpleasant Um, and and shockingly so, given um, how much joy movies in their finished form give everybody. Um, you know, there's the joke about how the most exciting day of your life is your first day on a movie set and the most boring day of your life is your second day on a movie set. (laughs) You know, it's a job and, um, it, it comes with, with pressures and, and unpleasantries that are, you know, some people can take and some people can't, you know, as for me, um, Making movies is also a business. and while I, I I will take your praise that I was good at that, good good at the part of like the movies, as I said, you know, that's fun being on set and giving the writer and director the tools that that he or she needs to do their work um and to have success. um. There's a business side that's going on around that that involves, you know, money and involves distribution, involves all sorts of things that I don't think I proved to have very much talent at or didn't have the financial resources to stay in the game long enough to discover whether I had a talent for it. Um, You know, one answer to your question is a movie I made several years after The Believer was a movie called Up With Me. And that's a movie where I I actually joined the film in in post-production, although I was working with the writer and the director during the production uh, on another project and also advising him. A wonderful, very talented uh, fellow named Greg Takoudis. And um, Up With Me is a movie that was made for very little money and went to South by Southwest and won a big prize there for the cast. And the best offer coming out of South by Southwest for that movie was $5,000 from IFC. I mean, it would have cost $15,000 just to finish the movie. Mm-hmm. So that IFC could show it. And you know, I had three kids and a mortgage. It was just like, geez Louise, I, I can't make a living doing this. Um, and so uh the people who could make a living doing that either had no either had no overhead or they had a lot of money and they could afford to not really make money from producing movies. Um and so for me that wasn't a great situation. It wasn't financially sustainable and not doesn't feel very good. Um, but you know, also, uh, you know, there was some luck in in making the believer when we did and how we did. Um, because after the Believer won Sundance, lots of people came to me and said, what do you want to make? You know, we'll fund that. And I would bring scripts to them and uh they wouldn't want to make those scripts because they were too weird to them. Uh I was very drawn, not because I think I'm weird, because I'm really not that weird, but I was very drawn to a lot of scripts that I thought were excellent that I did not know how to get made. No one would seem to give me the money necessary to make those scripts. And some of those movies ended up getting made. And, and though they weren't very successful, uh, you know, they did get made. So obviously somebody could get them made. And a lot of those scripts just never got made. And and I think that was a sign that it wasn't just me, but that I was drawn to scripts that weren't necessarily makeable. And And I got a little bit lucky that I got to work early in my career on some films that were both weird and were makeable and did very well artistically and made a great impression on people. And uh, I don't want to say necessarily that it was all luck. I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. But there was a lot of luck involved and and uh, I don't think that that luck was going to last. Now, I also know that at one point, Henry did tell me what the third piece in the trilogy was going to be. Ooh. And I'm feeling terrible now that I can't recall it. Uh, I'll have to ask him. And maybe he's written it and maybe he could write it.
1: Oh, leave us leave us on a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. And I think even Henry, you know,
0: intimated that, you know, if the circumstances were right, you know, he would conceivably direct. But he's he's um he's really he's writing a lot now and, and he's got a novel he's working on and um a television show and I think he's plenty busy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone's everyone's doing okay. And a movie takes
0: over your life, you know, for several years. And um, you have to really be willing to focus pretty monomaniacally on that thing. And, and, and there's a, there's an opportunity cost because you must set aside many other things.
1: Well, a lot of the time, the place we get to on this, the world is wrong thing is that even though the world may be wrong about a film, a film is not a... like. Someone only getting to make one or two great films is not a tragedy. They, we got two, one or two great films. Uh, it, you, don't ha- the, you don't have to make 80 films to be a success in the film business. You need to make one, and not even one great one. But if you make one great one, I feel like that is, you, you know, they can't take that away from, I don't know about you, but they can't take that away from us, the the audience. <laughs> yeah you know. uh, well, sure that's good yeah
0: no it's 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 thrilling you know you, th- there's an empty space in the world where an idea does not exist, and then uh someone like Henry comes along and he fills that empty space with an idea that he sort of he took some yeast you know from the from the ether and he built a thing out of it, and then we all got to work on it and and then suddenly there was a uh, a movie, a full movie with a complete and interesting and rich idea a set of ideas in it. And that people still watch and talk about today and care about. And that's a great feeling.
1: Yeah. And who knows what would have... I mean, as you say, Ryan Gosling probably had it when he came in that door and would have had it if you guys hadn't recognized it. But it's part of that trajectory. And it's part of history. Uh, So cool is there anything we didn't that you felt like uh we wanted to touch on about the believer that you that you feel like we didn't get to
0: no i i'm just glad that we got a chance to talk about all the other people who who worked on it because of course um
1: oh i'm gonna cut that out
0: there's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, good. I'm just glad we got, I mean, I, I feel I've done morally the right thing. No, it's, it's, uh, you know, look, Henry wrote and directed the thing and he's the visionary behind it. And, and Ryan did such a great thing. But I think it's important to remember people like Jim and Susan and
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, Andrew Kim Fagen and who's the line producer, all, all sorts of people, Susan Hoffman, all, all sorts of people who did, um, you know, as I said, um, a lot of people have to put in a lot of, you know, bring their A game. And uh, most of those people don't get remembered. And talked about on podcasts, but um, they all have their fingerprints on everything that's wonderful and funny and delicious and compelling and dramatic about the film.
1: And that's why people like you should be the producers of these films instead of the people who, (laughs) uh, you know, just are credit hogs and keep going on up the ladder. So, uh, yeah, well, you're a mensch.
0: Um, You're nice to say so.
1: I didn't ask you about it, but I, I was when I was looking at this uh the film you did with Craig Bierko and Janine Garofalo. That looks like that looks nuts. <laughs> well, it's a
0: sh- well it's a short. It's a short film for, for Showtime, written and directed by Morgan Jerome Freeman.
1: Not um, Morgan Freeman.
0: Yeah. No, not the other Morgan Freeman. Um uh yes, Cherry Picker was 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 amusing. It was an amusing little film. What's it about? Well, uh, it's it it's about, it's about a, a worker, I believe, played by Gene Garofalo, on a um, on a cherry picker, which is you know the, the a scissor lift, right, like a, a construction mm-hmm. equipment that that raises a person high and low, and she appears at his window and sort of stalks him or something like that. Um,
1: Craig Bierko is, he's, I, I think he's he's one of my favorite unheralded, but very successful yes. actors. Well,
0: I believe you think the world is wrong about that Three Stooges movie.
1: That yes. He just, yeah. he was the, I mean, he was one of the best things in it. He was so good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he was, he was extremely funny. And, and uh, I mean, it was just a day of shooting, uh, but he was real, uh, fun. I mean, they were both very pleasure. They, they were at the time, I could be wrong about this. I think at the time they were dating, um, and that is how they came to be cast together in the film. Um, and I do not think that they stayed dating for terribly long after <laughs> the film was shot. Um, uh, so the but,
1: film is like their baby.
0: Um, I feel like Morgan Jerome Freeman's baby, but yes, yes, something like that. So it's like somebody's baby. Um,
1: um You know, actually, and I should have asked you if, if I, I'm asking you now, we didn't talk about and this is one thing I've all uh, this is a memory, a hazy memory I have when you were visiting me in L.A. in like would have been 1987, 88. No, would have been 88 because I knew Andy Dick at the time and you went off and filmed something with Ben Stiller on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes. Well, that's not that's almost correct. Okay. Um Tell so Andy,
0: so this this was the summer of I think it was the summer of 89, although Probably.
1: Yeah, that's, maybe I'm that that makes sense.
0: So Andy um Andy knew Ben Stiller and Ben Stiller was doing his variety show or comedy show like it was in development.
1: Right. The Ben and
0: Stiller show the Ben Show, and he wanted Andy to be on it, or Andy wanted to be on it, uh, and so we had to make an audition tape. So um, Andy and I, and I'm sure this is not how Andy will remember it, but Andy and I actually kind of co-wrote a bunch of comedy bits for him to do. Um, And my idea was for him to be a mime who could not shut up and to (laughs) go to like Grumman's Theater and he would like stand in mime outfit and he would like mime, you know, pulling a rope. And then he would say, it's a rope. Don't you get it? It's a rope <coughs> <laughs> to people, to people who were passing by. And so everything he did, he would get so frustrated that people weren't saying what it was he was doing that he would start telling them what he was doing. He just couldn't stop talking. Anyhow, and I think that's the tape that he sent to Ben Stiller. And I, and I believe that he got the job, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. That is never heard. Never heard away.
1: boo about it from him. Yeah. Well, you know, join. <laughs> I've been friends with him for ever since then. Done yeah. a lot more. And there's not not a lot of boo. But, you know, yeah, yeah, it's the sometimes it's just the pleasure of being around someone who makes you laugh that much.
0: Yes. And mm-hmm. then there's Andy. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I mean, yeah, so that's that's all. Andy had this big ass video camera and so we would tote it around and i would just shoot him doing stupid shit around los angeles
1: cool yeah but i enjoyed it yeah i
0: mean i mean i mean i'm not i'm not, I'm not you know of my i i have no
1: i remember to fair, I have, You I seem had no to complaints have fun about i have time. no complaints
0: about oh yeah yeah no, i have no no complaints about it whatsoever and I, I this is
1: before andy was in anything this is before andy dick was in anything and ben stiller nobody knew who ben stiller was at all, except that right. I mean, I, I guess I vaguely remember. he was the son of Jerry
0: Stiller. Yeah. Yes.
1: And even then, that's pre Seinfeld, okay. Jerry Stiller. So Stiller and Mira were they were, you know, they're like. They weren't like household name celebrities. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Ben Stiller is more of a household name celebrity. Yeah, yeah. than they were. So it's just to say that this is like we're not talking about, you know, hanging out with the hoy polloi. This is, no
0: no this is yeah. when you and andy and i were living in los angeles and you know well i guess you had done elm street but i mean basically you know
1: yeah just, that's when i nobody, was you know that's when i was the big star yeah there you go yeah. there you go. I had my moment of and what did i do with it yes. Oh, jeez. Yeah. all right uh on then, that note on that note to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your